Focus on Headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our usual Tuesday reporters in Kwanzaa and Che Jihee. Guys, welcome back. Hello. Guys, we're going to start things off with the UN Security Council getting together this to discuss North Korea's recent launch of intercontinental ballistic missile. We talked about this uh, in depth yesterday. Uh, we had the uh, the ICBM Hwasong-15 being launched over the weekend. We had uh, a couple of short-range ballistic missiles being fired uh, Monday morning as well. Of course, in response to this, they did hold this meeting. But as always, not surprising, they did fail in reaching an agreement on the issue with China and, of course, Russia now, blaming both South Korea and the U.S. for the North's provocation. So I'll start us off with this. Right. It's been getting more and more difficult to get the members of the U.N. Security Council on the same page when it comes to North Korea issues. The council met for an emergency meeting on the North's latest missile launches, including an ICBM, at the U.N. headquarters in New York on Monday local time. The meeting was requested by Japan. There, most member states expressed their unity against Pyongyang's continuous provocations, seeing the need for a strong response. That response they want in the form of a presidential statement, not even a resolution. Uh, however, China and Russia, the North's most closest allies, continue to block the measure. And this is why they, at this point, they can't even think of adopting a new resolution. But at least what they're trying to do is uh, get a presidential statement done. Mm. Now, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said the repeated failures by the UNSC to respond gives North Korea more confidence to conduct these launches without fearing consequences. She in specific pointed at Beijing and Moscow by saying, quote, this failure is not collective, it is specific. It stems from the two veto-wielding members of this council who have repeatedly shut down all efforts at a meaningful response. And uh, the veto-wielding members are, of course, the permanent members that include the U.S., U.K., France, China, and Russia. South Korea's ambassador to the U.N., who attended Monday's meeting as a country that's deeply related to the country, uh, Korean Peninsula issue, highlighted Pyongyang's reckless development of its weapons program for decades according to their plan. He, uh, who is uh, Hwang Jung-guk, added that regardless of our military exercise, with our, meaning South Korea and the U.S., or policies toward the North, quote, any attempt to blame the so-called both sides for the current tension on the peninsula is illogical, groundless, and therefore unacceptable. And he was apparently referring to China and Russia, who claimed that it's the joint South Korea-U.S. military drills that make North Korea test its missiles. In fact, Russia's deputy ambassador to the UN, Dmitry Polyansky, said the North's missile tests are a response to unprecedented military maneuvers under the U.S. umbrella, which are certainly, quote, anti-Pyongyang in nature. China's deputy UN ambassador Dai Bing told the council it's the military exercises by Seoul and Washington which are being conducted on a higher level and bigger scale. He also criticized the deployment of U.S. strategic assets and even the visit by NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg to Seoul and Tokyo earlier this month, so calling all of these provocations against North Korea. 
The UN ambassadors from the UK and France, as well as Japan, who just like South Korea is a country directly involved in the issue but not a permanent member of the UNSC, denounced the North's threats as well as China and Russia's non-cooperative behavior. So it's like one of those things, who did it first, right? Who who, uh, fired first? Uh, Who swung the fist first? And it's of Uh, course North Korea. They are making it sound as if, oh, it's because of South Korea and the US that North Korea is continuing its... Right, because according to if if you just base it on what China and Russia said, it looks like because the United States and South Korea are conducting these military drills that uh, North Korea feels very threatened, and hence uh, you're seeing this uh, missile provocation. But on the flip side, uh, for the United States and South Korea, they conducted these uh, joint air drills because they conducted the ICBM test, right? It was a response to that. And then in response to the joint air drills, uh, they fired away two more short-range ballistic missiles. And so it's an ongoing cycle right now, but it is interesting that uh, the, the point that was being made in that North Korea is now fearless. They have no concerns when it comes to firing away these ICBMs because they know that as soon as some kind of resolution is trying to be passed at the UNSC level, they have China and Russia, which is also the reason and why they're a little bit hesitant on uh, testing their nuclear weapons because nuclear weapons is a different story, right? They, they, I think China and Russia has all kind of come out and said, we'll give them the pass on the ICBM. Uh, but when it comes to the nuclear test, that's something that we probably can't give them a pass on. And so there's a very good chance that any kind of UNSC resolution might be passed, uh, even with China and Russia holding the veto powers if North Korea goes ahead and test their seventh nuclear test. So interesting stuff going on. Obviously, teams being forward here. But let's go back here. South Korea, the U.S., Japan, of course, condemning North Korea's missile provocation. You have the other side, China and Russia, expressing messages of support toward the regime. G, tell us more about this. Sure. So the U.S. and its allies urged the U.N. Security Council on Monday to condemn North Korea's unlawful ballistic missile launches. But uh, like Soa said, China and Russia blamed the U.S. for escalating tensions uh, with their whole military exercises with its allies and showed support towards North Korea. So the Chinese foreign ministry today stated through its website that the special representative on Korean Peninsula affairs, Liu Xiaoming, met Igor uh, Morgulov, the Russian ambassador to China, to exchange opinions on the current affairs of the Korean Peninsula. So the two sides were in line with the idea that there was a cause behind how the whole situation on uh, the Korean Peninsula changed this way. And they added that each side should stick to the direction of a political solution and focus on resolving their respective concerns, especially North Korea's reasonable concerns in a balanced manner. Also showing uh, messages of support towards North Korea. And this could be interpreted as confirming the existing position that sanctions against North Korea must be eased in order to resume negotiations on the nuclear issue, uh, while emphasizing the need to address North Korea's security concerns as well. Well, last year, China and Russia also exercised their veto power in the UN Security Council's vote on strengthening sanctions against North Korea, uh, and they insisted on easing sanctions against North Korea to resume negotiations. And Representative Liu and Ambassador Morgulov also called for continued close communication and cooperation on the Korean Peninsula issue, jointly safeguarding peace and stability uh, in the region and promoting the process of political resolution of uh, the Korean Korean Peninsula as well. 
Uh, meanwhile, China's top diplomat Wang Yi is scheduled to visit Russia as the last stop of his Europe tour that began a week ago. And this trip is seen as China's attempted diplomatic balancing act to maintain uh, high-level interactions with Russia. That's right. And I think the U.S. is kind of watching that uh, very closely because what they're fearing and uh, Ukraine is also fearing that uh, eventually China goes, well, we're going to start assisting uh, Russia with some ammunition, which uh, Russia, I believe, is uh, very short of. So, again, I mean, this is quite interesting. It's it's the who said uh, who said what and he said she said right now. Uh, and even when it comes to a lot of these uh, military drills that are being conducted on an uh, annual basis between uh, South Korea and the United States, we say that it's defensive in nature. And if you look at just the way that these uh, joint air drills or the military drills are conducted, it does seem very much defensive in nature. North Korea, of course, is going to say that, no, it seems like a, a plan for an invasion into North Korea. And then North Korea also with their missile provocations, they'll say it's defensive in nature. I don't know how a ballistic missile is defensive in nature. Uh, but again, both sides saying it's defensive in nature. And it's a he said, she said right now. And uh, we go in circles, obviously. We'll continue to take a close look at the situation here because we're seeing more and more, uh, especially because of the geopolitical tensions that uh, teams are forming uh, less ambiguously now. Uh, moving on here, U.S. President Joe Biden making a surprise visit to Kyiv on Monday, during which he met with Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. This also marks the uh, almost a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, the 24th marking the exact one-year anniversary. So uh, what is the message Biden deliver, delivered in uh, Ukraine's capital? Well, Biden's trip definitely meant a lot. For one, it was a clear message of support for Ukraine. At the same time, it was a strong message of defiance to Russia's President Vladimir Putin. Now, breaking news of Biden's unannounced visit to Ukraine first came out yesterday evening, Korea time, if I'm correct. Um Esther, do you remember? It, it, I think it came out around 7 p.m. So probably when you couldn't, you didn't report on this during no. Focus on Headline. No, 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 no. Yeah, so uh, I, I was seeing the breaking news coming out yesterday uh, evening and unannounced it was due to security issues. And uh, that's also why this visit uh, took some time to materialize, I yeah. believe, because uh, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky actually had requested Biden to visit the country, but it was probably not an easy task. No. But now um, it has happened and it was quite timely, just four days ahead of the one-year anniversary since Russia's invasion, as you mentioned, the 24th. So for Biden, this was his first trip to a war-torn country since his inauguration. So more on uh, how his trip was actually kept secret. He flew to Poland his trip to Poland was earlier announced, mm -hmm. and then he took the train for 10 hours to Kyiv. Although the world media was not briefed on this, Russia was actually informed a few hours before Biden's departure, and this was in order to avoid conflicts later on. Actually, it is very rare for a sitting president to visit a war zone with no U.S. military stationed. So once Biden and Zelensky met, uh, what did they do? Biden was uh, first off greeted by his Ukrainian counterpart at the presidential palace. They also together visited a memorial of soldiers that had died in the past nine years since Russia's annexation of Crimea. 
Biden called Ukraine's resilience over the past year astounding and emphasized the world, the whole world sees it. He promised the U.S. would support Ukraine as long as it takes. Biden also expressed confidence that the country will continue to prevail, adding that Russia's President Vladimir Putin is, quote, dead wrong to believe Moscow could outlast Ukraine and its allies. Following the visit, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken unveiled Washington's new package of security assistance to Ukraine worth $450 million U.S. dollars. It includes ammunition for howitzers, also $10 million to repair and maintain energy infrastructure. The U.S. is also about to announce new sanctions against Russia sometime later this week, so probably maybe on the exact day when it marks one year since the invasion. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised because I think the the EU with their, I think they're going for their ninth or tenth package of sanctions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also going to be implemented on that very day, uh, on the 24th. And you're right, I, there is a reason for why they did inform uh, Russia. Number one, Russia has before uh, attacked train stations. Uh, and uh, number two, in case there is a conflict like this, if a sitting president, especially U.S. president, uh, gets in the mix of a crossfire or is injured or even killed uh, because of Russia's attack, uh, even if it's by accident, uh, that is going to lead to an all-out war. So it is quite brazen, quite brave of President Biden to fly over and uh take the train 10 hours to head over to Kiev there. Uh, But of course, for our listeners out there, marking the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, later in the week, uh, we'll get an extensive analysis on the uh, one year after on that. So stay tuned later in the week. Uh, Staying with the issue as well, uh, we had, of course, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, uh, who delivered his annual State of the Nation address uh, this was around uh, midday local time, uh, which was originally meant to be given in December, but was uh, postponed, I believe. Uh, so tell us more about this, Chihi. Right. So Russian President Vladimir Putin, who delivered this highly symbolic state of the nation uh, address in ad- address in the Uh, Federal Assembly, both houses of the country's parliament, and also to the military commanders and uh, soldiers as the invasion of Ukraine nears its first anniversary this week. Now, the noon address is uh, targeted at a domestic audience, and the focus will be Ukraine, was Ukraine, according to Putin's uh, spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov. And Putin was expected to assess the progress of what he called the special military operation in Ukraine. And that was the main topic of this speech, uh, as well as the situation in the international arena. Now, the last time Putin spoke uh, to the Russian people before this was his annual New Year address. Uh, There, he promoted the Kremlin's alternative reality that in this conflict, Russia is the hero and Ukraine uh, and the rest are the villains. Uh, Typically, more than 1,000 guests are in attendance for Putin's State of the Nation speech, including lawmakers, judges, uh, regional administrative officials, and religious leaders. And after the uh, speech, President Biden, who Soha mentioned that is in Poland right now, will also speak at the Warsaw Castle in Poland tomorrow morning uh, to reaffirm that Russia's invasion is a violation of international law and plans to declare his will to protect world order. Now, this is uh, quite an interesting 
thing here because uh, I am one of those people that believe that uh, politics and sports should be separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but despite that, we had 35 nations voicing their opposition towards Russian and Belarusian uh, athletes taking part in the Paris Olympic next year. Wow, it's already next year. And South Korea mm-hmm. is among them. So you have more on this. Yes, I was also surprised that it's already <laughs> happening next year. Um, in a statement released on Monday, the governments of 35 countries urged the IOC or International Olympic Committee to clarify the definition of neutrality as the committee appears to be seeking a way to let athletes from Russia and Belarus participate at the 2024 Paris Summer Olympics. This, of course, coming on the back of Russia's war in Ukraine and Belarus active support of Russia in the aggressions. The statement read, as long as these fundamental issues and the substantial lack of clarity and concrete detail on a workable neutrality model are not addressed, we do not agree that Russian and Belarusian athletes should be allowed back into competition. Not only are representatives of the U.S., U.K., Germany, and Canada, uh, which are countries that bring a huge proportion of athletes to the Games among the signatories, but even host country France, which will make it difficult for the IOC to include Russian and Belarusian athletes, even if they won't officially compete for their nation. And I think uh, the U.S., U.K., Germany, Canada, plus France together make up around a fifth of all athletes. Mm. Uh, South Korea is also among the 35 nations, along with Japan and mainly Western nations. I took a list at the 35 nations, and uh, I thought it's actually pretty interesting that South Korea uh, and Japan actually were pretty strong Mm. Uh, also on this side. Uh, Some countries like Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, and Denmark even hinted at a possible Olympic boycott if the war continues. The IOC's argument for finding a method to allow the athletes is they should these athletes should not face discrimination for the passports they hold. And uh, the IOC cited opinions of UN human rights experts, which is why we've been seeing in the past athletes with neutral flags and uniforms in past games. But... Yeah, I was actually really interested in what you guys think about this issue. Esther, you said you usually think that politics should and sports should be um, yeah. separated. Yeah, I mean, you but, know, we mm. talk about like the separation of church and state and things like that. We talk about uh, unless it's a you know a private school, the separation of education and religion and so forth. And I think politics and sports is something that should be kind of left separated, right? And if you've seen in the past, uh, you know, Russia has completed under the IOC flag uh, for the past several uh, Olympic Games. And I, I think that was because of the the, the state-backed uh, steroid scandal that they mm-hmm. had. And so, which also, I, I kind of never really understood that. It's like you're technically banning Russia from competing, but they're still competing. It's just that they're not competing under the Russian flag. So it's still the, the you know the, the Russian players, right? And that is exactly why uh, now these countries are against these players even competing as neutral players because it still yeah, seems yeah. to people that they are Russian athletes. So I was very mm-hmm. much for banning Russia from the Olympic Games when they were kind of backed by the state-funded uh, you know the Roy scandal, which mm-hmm. that's that's cheating, right? I mean that that that's not you know politics and sports. That's just sports, and uh, you've broken a, a rule there. But I don't know how I feel about 
because maybe some of the uh, you know the Russian athletes are very much against this invasion of mm. Ukraine, uh, and they have nothing to do with Russia's decision to uh, invade Ukraine, and yet they're they're suffering for this, and this is a very political thing right now, and Western countries coming together and kind of going Russia, you're out of this, and but it was that's like saying. I mean, you know, I'm very much against what Japanese government says sometimes, but doesn't mean that I hate the Japanese people. I think that Japanese people are great people. Like, there's a lot I think that you can learn from the people, the Japanese people. It's just I don't fully, you know, uh, stand with what the Japanese government says. Chi, what about yourself? I agree with you because we definitely have to separate these issues, and especially when it comes to political concerns between uh, countries like Japan and South Korea. There's no reason for us to hate the people themselves because they're just under like a government control, and it's the government that makes the decisions that irritate us sometimes. And there's no reason for us to vent out that anger towards the people who are really innocent. Mm. Mm. And I, but what I think is, uh, in the case of the Olympics. Um, it will do Russia good if they have their athletes compete, for instance, and then win a gold medal or whatever. So in this case, we if, if these um, athletes do participate, it will do a favor to Russia. But in this case, we maybe have to, you know, uh, um, punish Russia in every sense we can because they really have to stop these aggressions. Yeah, the- but then but if the Russian athletes winning the gold medal, the Russian government doesn't get anything out of that. If anything, the Russian government pays the athletes who end up winning the, uh, the, no, the, the it, gold medals. It is kind of a punishment to not let them play. It, it, oh, I, I know it's really un, it's really kind of uh, unfair for the uh, individual athletes. But if we look at it from the national point of view, it is also doing a punishment to Russia and yeah, Belarus. But, yo, I know, I know mm. what you mean, but... IOC has for the longest time kept on stating you need to leave politics out of sports, right? And the thing that really angered me the most is if you remember the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics when Mm -hmm. South Korea was the host country, right? Um, One of the goaltenders on the men's ice hockey team, he was... I think he was, he was naturalized. I don't. I forget if he, if he was originally from the U.S. or Canada, one of the two countries. But goaltenders in uh, ice hockey, they're allowed to design their oh, yes, face masks, right? And so he designed it with Admiral Lee Sun Shin, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't. He, he probably loved Korean history. I don't know. Uh, the J- Japanese basically said you can't do that. That's a political statement. And they're like, what is Shin a political statement? How is that becoming a political statement? Uh, they, we were not allowed to have Tokdo on the map because that was considered a political statement. I have absolutely no why that that's a political statement because geographically and historically and by international law, Tokdo is part of Korea. So I don't know why that was a hist- uh, a political statement. IOC, if they they have to be on the same track. If they said that's political, they have to say, and you have to leave politics out of it, then you have to leave this out too. That's my argument. As, as bad as what Russia did, you just got to take it out because that's what the IOC said. And then eventually, later on, they said, oh, it's going to be a ripple effect, right? North Korea fires an ICBM. Let's now start boycotting. Let's, uh, you know, ban North Korea from competing in the, the Olympics. Uh, China sends two more spy balloons. Let's start banning China from uh, competing in the Olympic Games. Like, there, there is no end to this, I, I feel like. Mm. 
You know what I'm saying? I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> and I, I do partially agree with what you're saying. But in this case, now seeing more than 30 countries uh, signing this, I think it is, they just think it's, the current situation is just, you know, extreme what Russia is doing. And that's... Oh, I'm sure. I, yeah, I, I think... I don't, I don't disagree with that. trying to, you know... Do whatever they can to, you know, make more statements to the international community. I, my thing is 192 countries can sign for this, but the IOC needs to keep it uh, basically steady. Uh, they have to keep consistent with their... Oh, there you go. It's a G's <laughs> favorite word. G's favorite word, consistent. Uh, that's, that's a word we we'll haven't heard in a We'll see what happens. <laughs> so... Yeah, uh, Chris Rose says, problem today is everything is political. Uh, Teto says, politics is the root. Uh, I do agree with you. We're going to end it at that because we'll probably continue to talk <laughs> on for hours uh, if you toss politics and sports at me. In the meantime, let's move on. Two weeks after the massive earthquake that killed tens of thousands of people in Turkey and uh, Syria, uh, this time at magnitude 6.3 aftershock struck southern Turkey once again on Monday Gee, let's get the details of this. Right. So 14 days has passed after two powerful earthquakes shook southern Turkey and northern Syria um, in what has been described as one of the deadliest earthquakes of the 21st century. Uh, another one has caused buildings to collapse, with hundreds of more people injured in both countries. According to officials, at least three were killed and around 300 more were injured in Turkey. And hundreds of rescuers worked into the early hours of Tuesday morning, uh, trying to rescue men who were trapped in a building that had survived the initial quake, uh, but came down because of this after, uh, after uh, this additional quake. And in northwest Syria, at least 470 people were injured in Monday's quake, which also caused a number of other building, buildings to collapse, and at least five were killed. Uh, the recent aftershock caused blackouts in parts of southeast Turkey and northwest Syria, also cutting off phone and internet connections. And Reuters reported that the tremor was felt in Egypt and Lebanon as well. Uh, the United States Geolog Geological Survey initially reported the quake as being of magnitude 6.4 at a depth of 10 kilometers before revising it down to 6.3 magnitudes. Uh, officials have been urging the public to stay away from buildings, and Turkish Vice President Fuat Okte uh, earlier Monday asked the public not to enter the damaged buildings, especially to uh, take their belongings. And according to the USGS, Monday's quake is considered an aftershock as it's in the same general region and lower than the original 7.8 magnitude earthquake. And also they explain that aftershocks become less frequent with time, although they can continue for days, weeks, months, or even years uh, for a very large main shock. Yeah, and that's a scary thing mm. is, uh, I mean, you're talking about thousands of aftershocks that these regions are being hit with and uh, this is certainly not normal uh not to, and you look at some of the the interviews on the the free foreign media outlets uh, interviewing people in turkey they're saying even the slightest tremors they're just out running outdoors because they're afraid that it's another massive aftershock and that the buildings are going to collapse so even the survivors are unable to sleep with ease and uh it's it's that that area it's 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 devastating and to continue to see this uh, even after two weeks. And uh, this is going to further delay, I think, the, the reconstruction uh, operation that needs to uh, start real soon there. 
Moving on here, let's talk about economics. Uh, inflation expectations here in the country increasing for the second straight month in February. So I'll tell us why. Right. According to a survey by the Bank of Korea this Tuesday, South Korea's inflation expectations continued to go up for the second consecutive month due to concerns over rising utility charges such as electricity costs. Inflation expectations are the rate at which ordinary people, including consumers, businesses, investors, expect prices to rise in the future. The figure is important as it has partial influence in the actual inflation. The BOK's poll said the average person projected that consumer prices would rise by 4% over the next year, an increase of 0.1 percentage point from expectations the month before. Utility bills were named as a major factor that's driving up inflation pressure. In fact, 87.8% said so, followed by oil-related and agricultural products at 29.2% and 27.6% respectively. The results may affect a rate-setting meeting by the central bank this Thursday. Last month, it had announced another rate increase of a quarter percentage point to combat rising inflation. Some observers forecast another quarter-point revision upwards. Others predict it will be maintained at its current level amid concerns aggressive monetary tightening could harm the economy. Well, one thing's for sure, uh, the continued surge in consumer prices uh, certainly posing a huge burden on Korean households. The average grocery expenses have risen by almost 17% on year. Uh, liquor prices have also gone up, which is ridiculous. Gee, let's get the numbers in detail. Sure. So literally everything except our wages mm-hmm. has increased uh, from eating out to heating costs, electric- electricity bills and transport fees. The cost of living in general in this country has gone up. Now, according to a recent survey conducted based on Korea Consumer Agency's data, the average cost of goods at large supermarkets nationwide Nationwide has increased by 16.9% year on year. So put that into perspective, in January of 2022, it was possible to buy 20 items for 100,000 Korean won, but to buy the same products now, you have to pay an extra 17,000 Korean won. Uh, More than half of the most commonly bought 20 items have increased in terms of their cost by over 10%. And this was more prominent in items such as meat, vegetables and fresh food products. And it's not just grocery marts, uh, but restaurants and franchises have also raised food prices, adding to the burden of people eating out. And according to a report published by the Korea Economic Research Institute, Korea's uh, Engels coefficient jumped in the post-pandemic era far higher than in other major countries. And this is the proportion of food costs out of a person's total spending. And the number rose 1.4 percentage points to 12.8% compared to 2019, uh, just before the coronavirus outbreak. Now, this means low-income earners are struggling more financially in relative terms. And in addition, like you mentioned earlier, South Korea's popularly consumed liquor soju, dubbed the liquor of the working class for being cheap, now lost its advantage and character as a cheap liquor uh, because alcoholic beverage prices hiked as well. Now, the price for alcoholic beverages, including soju, beer, rice wines, bakgeolli we call them as a whole, and imported liquor rose 5.7% on year, and this is the steepest hike in 24 years. Yeah, uh, you experienced it even more 
uh, when you go to restaurants. And uh, I remember uh, recently ordered some soju from like a restaurant, and we usually pay like about four thousand one, I think, per bottle of right. soju. Now it's at five thousand. <gasps> that is a that is a huge jump. Um, and I mean, it's. <laughs> For example, when it, what is it? Uh, the, one of the things that I do is I do online grocery shopping. And there's something that I order on a weekly basis. Uh, four one-liter cartons of fat-free milk and a bunch of chicken breasts. And it's like the same order every week and the price keeps going up every week. I don't understand how quick... That's how quickly it's going up the prices right now. It, I order the same thing from that C... Uh, market mm. place and uh, the prices are different every week. I, don't, I just don't understand. Well, the government has decided so what to expand the uh, amount of spendings for fast execution in the first half of the year. Let's get the details of that. Yes, so 383 trillion won of an additional budget is what the government aims to inject in spendings for swift execution in the first half of the year to help the economy. This according to Choi Sang-dae, the second vice finance minister during a meeting he presided over over uh, this Tuesday. The money is expected to be spent on central, local, education, finances, investment in public institutions, and private projects. It consists of 346 trillion won in finances, 34.8 trillion won in investment uh, in public institutions, and 2.2 trillion won in private capital. And uh, at the meeting, the government decided to separately manage the execution of 56 trillion won of finances selected to ease the burden of living expenses for the vulnerable and small business owners. Moving on, uh, commercial banks in the countries uh, taking measures to do more social good and uh, share the financial burden felt by the public after of course, the, uh, the government slammed the lenders for making record high profits from rising interest rates. We talked about how people are struggling to pay their mortgages and paying off their interest and stuff like that. And yet, uh, these uh, commercial banks are giving out uh, massive retirement funds, uh, retirement money, and uh, bonuses here and there. Well, let's see what they're doing. Gee, you have the latest on this. Right. So major commercial banks have been blamed for making windfall profits amid several hikes in interest rates by the Bank of Korea while turning a blind eye uh, to the livelihoods of Koreans, which has been deteriorating. Now, President Yoon seok has been pressuring these commercial banks to pay more attention to this economic burden shouldered by the public. And earlier today, to respond to this uh, pressure by the president, the Korean Federation of Banks, KFB, announced that it will roll out several measures, including the plan for 20 of its members to hire over 2,200 people in the first half of this year, uh, which is up almost 50 percent from a year before. The 20 banks include KB, Shinhan, Hana, Uri, Nonghyeop banks, which reaped 30.4 billion U.S. dollars in combined net interest income last year alone. And this earning marked a 19.4% year-on-year increase, uh, largely due to a series of steep rate hikes delivered by the country's central bank. And the five major banks have been pressured uh, to give back to society some of their earnings that came from this rate hike. Uh, amid 
at the same time, many of their customers were in fact struggling to repay their debts. And as part of its effort in line with the request, the nation's largest lender, uh, KB Kungmin Bank, will drop the interest rate on home-backed loans by up to 0.55 percentage points, while internet-only Kakao Bank will uh, decrease its credit loan interest rate by up to 0.7 per percentage point. That's not a lot. <laughs> That's really not a lot, <laughs> to be honest with you. Chris Rhodes on our live YouTube says supermarkets here are claiming item prices have dropped, yet in reality it should be called back to pre-inflation, so not really a saving, just ripped off less. Well... That's good for you guys because, at least here, they're not going back to the pre-inflation uh, figures. And if you go to restaurants, you know how they have like the, the menus and the prices and stuff like that? You know how many stickers they're putting on t in front of <laughs> the, the, the numbers there? It used to be like 5,001. Now it's like 6,000, 7,000. They're just adding stickers. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, even if inflation figures go, do, uh, go down... That's going to be what we're going to be paying for from now on. They're not going to go back and take away that rip off a couple of stickers and go back to the, the pre-inflation figures. This is what the new price is. And uh, it really is unfortunate because, as we say, everything goes up except for our salaries. Lucky that we actually enjoy our jobs. And uh, money is secondary. We do, yeah. Money is secondary <laughs> for our jobs here. Guys, <laughs> thank you as always for your report. Please stay safe and we'll see you guys again. See you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.